0: Welcome to Unraveling the Anthropocene Race, Environment, and Pandemic, a podcast series brought to you by the Liberal Arts Collective, or LAC, at the Pennsylvania State University. As an interdisciplinary group, we promote visionary scholarship in the humanities, we build community across different fields of study, and we highlight the ways that different disciplines inform and shape one another. You can find more information about our previous events on our website sites.psu.edu backslash liberal arts collective. In response to the COVID-19 pandemic this year, we have developed this podcast series as an intervention into our global ecological emergency. In our discussions with scholars, activists, artists and community members, we address how global ecological crises both impact and are impacted by political turmoil, widespread outbreaks of infectious disease and racial violence. In this episode, LAC welcomes Dr. Sinfri Makoni and Dr. Bassi Antia to have a conversation about their project, Humor as a Semiotic Resource, Coping with COVID-19 Stress in Africa. Dr. Sinfri Makoni is an Associate Professor in African Studies and Applied Linguistics at Penn State. His work has altered the long-established ontologies of language. It draws on integrationist approaches and decolonial contextualities, arguing that colonial imposition of language was incompatible with the cultures and communication practices of the peoples that the colonial powers dominated. He is a prolific scholar, having produced 13 books, single-authored, co-authored, and edited, 77 refereed journal articles, and 42 book chapters. Most recently, his contribution to the integrationist and decolonial school of thought has been honored with the publication of two volumes out of a four-volume study dedicated to his work entitled African Applied Linguistics and Language in Africa. He holds honorary and visiting professorships at the University of South Africa, the University of Northwest South Africa, and the University of Cape Town. He has been awarded the Carnegie African Diaspora Fellowship twice, in the 2019 and in the 2020 cycle. Dr. Makoni has been a member of the University Faculty Senate, where he served as vice chair of the Senate Committee on Student Life and as member of the John White Graduate Fellowship Committee. He has served as a mentor and dissertation advisor to multiple students at Penn State and internationally. He has played an integral service role in both African studies and in applied linguistics. Dr. Bassi Antia is professor of linguistics at the University of the Western Cape in South Africa. He holds a PhD in applied linguistics from the University of Bielefeld in Germany. He has previously taught or held visiting lecturing or research positions at universities in Maidiguri, Bielefeld, Montreal, Barcelona, Guilford, Sochanguye, and Heidelberg. Language policy in higher education, language politics, language and health, multilingualism, and terminology are some areas of his research emphasis. In addition to journal articles and book chapters in these areas, he has authored, edited and co-edited volumes published by John Benjamin's publishing company, headquartered in Amsterdam. Hi and welcome back to Unraveling the Anthropocene. I'm Irene Agbideon and I'll be co-hosting today's episode with Tembi Charles.
1: Hi everyone, Uh, this is Tembi. I'm delighted to be in this space um, recording our first podcast
0: in the Liberal Arts Collective. We'll take a moment to go around the virtual table now and briefly introduce you to our speakers. We have here with us, Dr. Sinfri Makoni, Associate Professor in African Studies and Applied Linguistics at Penn State. Dr. Makoni, could you say hello to our listeners?
2: Oh, hi to everybody. It's nice to, that you have your time to listen to us. Yeah.
0: Welcome. We also have with us here today, Dr. Basi Antia, Professor of Linguistics at the University of the Western Cape in South Africa. Could you also say hello to our listeners?
3: Hi, everyone out there. It's a pleasure to be part of this uh, discussion.
0: Welcome to both of you. We're really glad to have you on this podcast. It's my pleasure to be talking with you today. So I'd like to get to know the both of you a little bit better and in your own words. Can you tell us a little bit about yourselves and what made you want to collaborate?
2: That's a tickle, right?
3: Okay. Right, so uh, thanks. Um, I'm based at the University of the Western Cape in uh, Cape Town, South Africa. And um, I teach uh, applied linguistics, uh, which also is uh, the area in which uh, Dr. Makoni works. We had been acquainted with each other's work, uh, which ranges over Um, a core of similar concerns, for instance, language and health, um, language politics, language policy. And although we hadn't met in person, we were kind of uh, familiar with each other's work. Um, Incidentally, um, we both were at different times chairperson of the Department of Linguistics at the University of the Western Cape, uh, but at vastly different time periods. Some five years ago, we did attempt to collaborate on a topic comparable to the one which has brought us here. Uh, That was the Ebola outbreak at the time, Uh, but that didn't quite work out in part because, uh, well, let's just say the timing wasn't right. So this successful collaboration is coming on the heels of two previous attempts at collaborating And I think, and Sinfri may want to add to this, I think the critical factor here was that in the intervening period, we got to meet finally and we became friends. And that sort of served as a lubricant for um, for further project ideas. Uh, Sinfri, like to add to that? um,
2: Yes, you're right that we attempted twice to meet, but um, we... We didn't succeed in getting our collaboration off the ground. Um, I think the lesson from that is you normally collaborate with somebody who you want to be a friend with, right? If the person is not, you really don't think the friendship is worthwhile. Academically, you're not likely to want to spend your time working with them. And in this, uh, the third time when we're trying to collaborate, too things I think also helped us. Um, uh, Professor Antia was on sabbatical leave. I was grounded in State College, so I was more or less on sabbatical leave from traveling. So we were all, I mean, stationary. So we then used that particular point um, to try and see if we could come up with something that could uh, help us to develop our collaboration.
0: Mm -hmm. Wow, that's excellent. You
2: collaborate not because you're friends, but because you want to be friends. right? Mm
0: -hmm. Mm -hmm. I like that approach to collaboration. (laughs) Yeah. Well, let's talk about your topic for today. Your project is titled, Humor as a Semiotic Resource, Coping Mm -hmm. with COVID-19 Stress in Africa. For listeners who might be new to this terminology, could you give a simple breakdown of what you mean by semiotic resource?
2: We construe this to mean um, ways of making meaning. And by making meaning, we mean a set of possibilities or affordances for processing or dealing with experiences. These possibilities include language, images, genres, actions, sounds, and more. We make meaning through these and other ways. We see humor then as a complex of resources that could involve a mobilization of images, languages, and so on. And that enable individuals to make meaning to, to themselves and to the world around them.
3: Right. I totally agree with Dr. Makoni's account of our understanding of uh, a semantic resource.
0: Can you explain to our listeners what exactly your project is about?
3: It's actually very simple. Um, Mm -hmm. So beneath the uh, highfalutin words uh, in the (laughs) title, it's actually a very, very simple idea. Mm -hmm. We're interested in how individuals on the continent of Africa are laughing their way through the tensions, the contradictions and the uh, adversities arising from the Mm -hmm. COVID-19 pandemic so uh, we're asking such questions as how are people creating and enjoying humor in for instance responding to the epicenters of the uh, of the pandemic um, or the threats uh, that uh, the virus poses or to even relevant uh, concerns of health governance at local and at international levels um How are people appropriating humor and inserting humor into their lived realities, inserting humor as uh, a survival kit? Uh, just to give a couple of examples to flesh this out, um, so we might find humorous memes around um, well portraying the West or Euro America in very different terms so there's one for instance that suggests that well if you go bragging that you've been to italy you've been to spain you've been to the us you are not welcome here you should be quarantined all Mm -hmm. right so it's it's a reversal of the original construct where you had bragging rights because you were well traveled all right or people because of the uh, material circumstances, using whatever they can find uh to protect themselves, including cabbage as face masks or uh people um using symptoms of uh covid nineteen to thwart uh breaking attempts into their home, so this uh Ab rubbers are attempting to get into your home and you just stand by the door on the other side and you cough and you say to your kid please can you get me the covid uh <laughs> drugs <laughs> i am on and <laughs> the, the robbers run away so essentially um we're trying to see how people are responding to the covid um virus okay so but To make it sound somewhat more academic, um, the point is this, Um, when the uh, virus broke out, we had come across samples of uh, memes on a range of social media platforms. And we then became interested in understanding what role humor was playing in people's lives, you know, as they sought to come to terms with with the disease. So we're interested in answering questions such as, what is the evidence of uh, COVID-related humor in individuals' experiences of uh, the virus on the continent? What clinical and social dimensions of the disease are the butts of humor? In other words, uh, being made as objects uh, of humor. Uh, And then what's the nature? What's the anatomy, if you like, of the humor? What are the constituents, the building blocks of the humor? And of course, what functions, critically, what functions um, can we read off from these humors? In other words, the functions, the humor is playing in the lives of. And then finally, I think we're also interested in the lessons that can be learned from the role humor is playing because oftentimes responses to epidemics or pandemics typically are driven from biomedical perspectives. And we think that humor offers certain lessons that have to do with taking into account local realities, artisanal knowledges, uh, vernacular ways of viewing the world, even while we are trying to respond. This is not something only for the clinicians. It's, it's something that is also very culturally embedded. So we need to strike a balance between biomedicine and uh, cultural realities. So in a nutshell, that's the kind of thing we're trying to do in our projects.
0: Oh, that's fascinating.
3: And uh, Basi, do we have the
2: memes, the visual images? I think we do.
3: Yes, we do. We can, let me maybe perhaps just share one or two to whet your appetite. Sure,
0: this is a treat for us who get to see you and our (laughs) listeners can check this out on our website later. Yes,
3: yes. Okay, so let's uh, just have a look at this. Um, Are you able to see my screen?
1: Yes. So we
3: see a gentleman here are laughing and uh, below it is a text that reads people who live <laughs> abroad um, were scared of villagers in the past whenever they came back uh, from Euro-America but today, we heard of people coming from those other parts of the world so what we see here is some process of reverse stigmatization, if you liked. Um, then, what we have here, uh, we see an individual who is on a stretcher being taken to what seems to be, well, what is labelled a general hospital, uh, but uh, it's it's really a hot and just by looking at it, you can tell that there are absolutely no facilities. Mm-hmm. And the, the, the patient in this case happens to be a politician who had in fact bragged about having put up a hospital in his community. Mm-hmm. So, the, oh. so the, 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 the dialogue goes as follows. Um, so the patient is protesting, no, 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 you can't bring me here. I am a politician, mm-hmm. to which the attendants respond, uh, but, 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 but it's it's your project, sir. Mm-hmm. So in <laughs> other words, if, if this was good, good enough for us, it should certainly be good for you as well. Mm-hmm. So what is good for the goose is good for the Gander. So obviously the point here is that on account of the lockdown, people haven't been able to travel to Euro-America for health care. So they now have to make do with, um, what is available locally, invariably what they themselves had set up. All right. Let me just give you another one. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Um, <laughs> right. Uh, yes, this is, you guessed right. This is a mask. This is intended mm-hmm. as a mask, but as you can see, this is a piece of lettuce, um, with a string that is serving as a mask this originated from kenya Mm -hmm. and yeah so the point here the critical point here is to see just how seriously people took the virus and were willing to do whatever even in the very dire circumstances to do whatever it took to protect them but on the other side on the other hand what we also see is a situation where where a food food item that should go into nourishing um, the individual is now serving as uh, personal protective equipment against the virus. And when you look at the setting of this individual, you may be right in thinking that this is a fairly indigent person who should ideally be using whatever resources they have to feed themselves. And herein lies some of the contradictions in the way we have managed um, the, the virus. It's typically for people to say we are almost on the verge of dying of hunger rather than the virus. So because attention is shifting to addressing real issues of poverty to responding, attempting to respond to a virus. So this particular meme has traveled around the world. He originated from Kenya, went to Latin America, and uh, ended up here in Nigeria, where you have this uh, subtext in pidgin English that says mask na mask. In other words, uh, whatever it is that we can lay our hands on serves just as well as your recommended masks. And then you see from Reddit, um, the play on what's here. So, this is a parody, a phonetic parody of Let Us Pray For Him. It says, oh. Let You Pray For Him. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay.
1: That's <laughs> great.
3: <laughs> <laughs> I, I see. Mm-hmm. Yes, I see you're all laughing. Mm-hmm. And you probably can tell when this uh, arose. So, this is detol and Antiseptic somehow all of a sudden i guess following something we are all very familiar with we see one of the uses of detail being uh, to combat human coronavirus mm. Mm. all right um so you could either inject them or, or you know drink them or not at all recommended
0: so no, no, we're not
3: recommending that. So, But what we say is that this is some parody. Okay. Um, here we have a committee talking back, all right, almost irreverently to power somewhere on the face of the planet. Now, uh, just maybe one or two more. Yeah. So here you have police officers <laughs> being sent to enforce social distance. <laughs> and what do oh you God. have? what you have uh, police officers crowded (laughs) in a truck without masks and yet they are going to enforce social distance again in terms of looking at how people are responding to the virus um in very creative ways so we have here um a lady who is decked out in some very obviously fancy outfits and there's a mask that matches the color of the outfit she's wearing and below it is a text that says in pidgin english in nigerian pidgin english blended with the yoruba language uh, says well i can just hear Nigerian tailors asking their clients, Bai, fi yasho mask mami," meaning, "Do we use some of the uh, leftover pieces <laughs> to sew a mask to match the outfit?" So people are creative, uh, trying to find ways of uh, making ends meet, even in a period of uh, adversity. So this is just a couple of examples just to whet your appetite.
0: Well, thank you for sharing those with us. They'll also be available on sites.psu.edu backslash liberal arts collective for our listeners to check them out. They are hilarious, I have to say. So we've been talking a little bit about the use of humor, why humor is an effective tool, not only in the stress management, but as a way to respond to power. I like the way that you've cast humor as this irreverent speaking back, right? In this use of humor, we're seeing a way of answering to colonial interpretations of the African continent. We're seeing responses to legacies of colonialism and violence. And in a way, humor is almost a, a reclaiming of the image of Africa that has been imposed by um, Euro-American ideals and hegemony. I want to ask you to talk a little bit more about a simple question. Why humor? You've already started unpacking this question, and I'd like to spend a little more time on this topic. What do you imagine studying humor, as opposed to other stress management tools, will offer you in a project concerned with the stresses of COVID-19? It's a new disease that is rapidly spreading and it's a unique pressure that we're facing. So what is humor going to give you as a tool?
2: Okay, let me try and have a go at this. I think there's reason to suspect that humor is one affordable um, socially and culturally appropriate tool um, which you can mobilize to respond when you are trying to respond in terms of stress management. So if you've got a repertoire of stress management tools, humor might be one of the key socially appropriate tools that you could use. But I think there's an important caveat here which uh, Basi and myself uh, want to make. To be clear, our interest in humor is not an attempt to trivialize the situation. In contrast, it it is our appreciation of the gravity of the situation That we see humor as one tool in a repertoire of other tools for responding to a a serious situation. To illustrate how humor has been used in in a variety of contexts, humor has been used in a variety of contexts of precarity and hopelessness, such as the plantation experiences of enslaved Africans in the Americas. And humor is known to have been used to deflect pain and to instill hope in that context. Humor is also known to possess an anesthetic and amnesic qualities in counseling. Humor has been shown to help individuals in stressful work situations to cope with stress. So there's evidence, um, there's extant evidence of the efficacy of humor, and the evidence is consistent with the relief theory of humor, which we'll talk about later on, according to which humor However it comes across, whether in terms of uh, inconclusive theory or superiority theory, is some defence mechanism, a shield that helps one circumvent unpleasant reality, no matter how momentarily and attributable to a long list of stressors. So, humour has been helpful, for example, in dealing with the following uh, situations. Uh, context of um, high infection and fatality rates job and other economic losses, extended lockdowns, disruption of lifestyles and critical services, the limited availability or access to personal protective equipment, the double feasibility of biomedically oriented recommendations on staying safe, witnesses in global, national and local governance of the disease and information overload and disinformation and so on. Second, humor is also relatively more affordable and more appropriate than a number of other uh, stress management tools in the biomedical literature. You, you can be able to um, uh, to use humor even if your credit is bad. All right? It is not. It is also. They
0: like
2: <laughs> the of stress management tools such as rest and sleep, exercise, and nutrition. I mean, they tell you you should rest. You should sleep, you should exercise, you should have nutrition, but there are social class factors I mean for you to rest, you must have some peace in that house for you to exercise there must be some room where you can be able to uh, to, to exercise right so some of the recommendations, let's say from the CDC et etc, are based on some assumptions of certain social class factors which a lot of people may not have access to. Mm. In serving as a tool for stress management, humor also does something further. It communicates often in audible, if not muted, lay voices on disease governance, right? In other words, what humor does provide you is a lay person's account of how the world is understood. What, we, what has tended to happen so far is that we've had the accounts of COVID from um, biomedicine, right? That is the voice that has been legitimated. But how do the individuals, the lay person, the grassroots, how do they make sense of this world that has been created around for them that is not available in the literature? So the project that we are working on that I'm working on with Professor Antia seeks to provide um, a lay account using humor as a mode of analysis how the grassroots are responding to this information universe that has been created through biomedicine.
0: Interesting. That's fascinating. So you're seeing, humor as this vital valve or a critical tool that we're using to navigate the unique social pressures that we're facing now, and it's a tool that's accessible to everyone regardless of their social position or whatever they have access to. Yes, yes,
2: yes. So for example, I mean with humor, even if uh, you're told that your, your credit record is very low or very high, you can still be able to create to jokes. So it, it is a sense in which you are able to access it irrespective of your status. But some of the um, uh, paraphernalia affordances that um, say that you need to be able to buy, for example, like masks, what type of masks, depend very much on the resources that you have got. So for example, the guy who had a mask of, um, of a cabbage, for example, uh, what he could okay. afford to buy as a, as a mask is totally different from the lady who had uh, that she had a yellow, yellowish mask. In other words, the type of mask was going to be different.
0: So I want to ask, what mm-hmm. stage of research are you in right now? And what are some of the trends you're observing thus far?
3: Yeah, so uh, the, the perhaps two parts... Uh, uh, um, So our answer, on the one hand, uh, we might say we are still still early days. We are still in the very early stages of uh, work. Uh, But um, in spite of that, uh, some of the preliminary data that we have seen, some of which I have just shared with you, um, indicates a number of trends, a number of patterns. Um, So one, we see grassroots ingenuity in responding to COVID-19. So the individual with the cabbage uh, mask, all right, um, or the the dressmaker who decides to use uh, whatever is left of the fabric uh, to create a mask. So we see grassroots ingenuity, but at the same time, simultaneously, uh, like the cabbage example, we also see a critique of uh, many of the top-down biomedical recommendations you know, for responding to the disease. I mean, there's one other one we saw where water had been kept for people to wash their hands and rather kids were drinking from it. So you're providing water for people to wash their hands. And people are saying, "Oh thank goodness! finally we've got water to drink." So it, it just makes nonsense of uh, the biomedical perspectives. Now the second trend which we see from the data is that uh, individuals are inserting COVID-19 into their daily lived experiences into their. Repertoire or archive of survival tools. So there was an example of the individual who decides to thwart a breaking attempt by coughing and asking for his uh, COVID medication. And that sent the robbers campering away. Okay. We also see um, a pattern indicating an attempt to subvert. Almost in this process of reverse stigmatization, the uh, traction which Euro America has held for many people of the continent. So um, the all of the bragging that went to being widely traveled, you know, um, has disappeared completely. So everyone is pretending to be a local people are denying that they have ever left the shores of their (laughs) countries because the moment you do that you are sent to some um quarantine location and what happens to you there is anyone's guess. all right so the the first uh, trend that we're seeing is really to critique the governance of the pandemic at a variety of levels international, you know, with, with the relevant uh, health uh, organizations, national at the level of governments, national governments, but also at very local levels. So those are the uh, sort of big patterns mm-hmm. that we can identify thus far. And mm-hmm. it's interesting to note how this are very consistent with the whole idea of coping, because that's the key issue. So we're not just looking at humor for the sake of looking at humor, but how humor is serving as a resource for people to cope. Now, these patterns are very consistent with a number of uh, the functions of humor as documented in the literature. So first, um, humor is said to have affiliative functions. In other words, to help create bond positive relations amongst people who are experiencing the same thing. So it gives you the sense that, look, you are not in this all by yourself. We are there as well. So it prevents you then from sinking into despair and, you know, having, harboring ill advised thoughts. So it does have that function and in a pandemic such as COVID-19 I think that's a very important function when we talk about coping but some of the humor we also see fits into what in the literature is referred to as self-enhancing humor in other words um, humor that makes you feel very good about yourself that makes you um even when you're in dark streets there's something uh, to look forward to. Something that tells you, look, you are bigger than this. This is going to go away. So that is also critical when you're talking about the coping um, dimension of humor. But you also have the aggressive type of humor, the one that puts down the other, all right? So when some regions of the world are being put down, because they are now the epicenters of the virus. There's a sense in which people reclaim power, even if it is momentarily or symbolically, and that makes them feel good after all. So the fact that I know that dental disinfectant will not cure the coronavirus, and someone else out there doesn't seem to know that, maybe I'm not. As bad as I thought I was, so, <laughs> so, um, so in a sense, I the, the ability to put down this other fellow makes me also feel good and say, well, you know, maybe there's hope um, in all of this. So that's uh, with respect to some of the preliminary things we're finding. But on the other hand, I mean, it would be disingenuous to suggest that. Uh, All of this came as a result of uh, our responding to the Social Science Research Council call. Prior to the award itself and the application for the award, we had been building structures um, around this project. So when Dr. McConney and I decided we're going to run with this idea, one thing that was very clear to us is that we wanted to use this as a space for mentoring graduate students we were very clear about that because this was a wonderful opportunity to have two african scholars one based in the u.s and the other one in africa working collaboratively um, on a given project and using them that to train graduate students. There's so much about, um, initiating, conceptualizing a research project, which never gets reported in publications. So many grad students never see the back end of some of the fancy publications they have to read. Mm. What's, mm. how did this begin? How were people corresponding at, uh, on holy hours, mm-hmm. uh, because they had this, they had this great idea, mm-hmm. and it couldn't wait till the following morning. It had to be shared. Okay, how do you research literature? How do you set up data capturing uh, structures and so on? Now, so currently on the project team, we've been working with uh, four. Penn State's grad students since inception. So these uh, grad students had only had, in a sense, uh, uh, Professor Marconi as the African scholar whose views they were familiar with. So my involvement in that mentoring space has kind of given them, you know, um, some other perspective. But I dare say very often, Professor Marconi and I are on the same wavelength. So in a sense, whatever I say, uh, Professor Marconi would say, well, you see, I told you, I told you. You <laughs> didn't believe me now at least. <laughs> you fed it, it from some other source. Mm-hmm. So in a nutshell then, um, from the preliminary data we have, Um, we have been able to identify a number of trends. It's still early days for uh, the project, but we also were saying that uh, the structures, the planning for this line of work was uh, put in place as uh, far back as, I believe, March this year. Mm -hmm. We had already, because we really missed the opportunity to work on Ebola, and Mm -hmm. so when coronavirus became the topical issue we both decided we're not going to miss out on this opportunity Mm -hmm. so we got things started Mm -hmm. and let me
2: just elaborate a bit more on what basi is saying tied to the argument that basi has been making very eloquently is our interest in the geopolitics of uh, knowledge production, that's why we're interested in humor uh, by people in the the grassroots level. Our views about uh, the geopolitics of knowledge production run something along the following lines, that if you want to understand aspects about finances, Yes, you can go and ask people who have got degrees in finance or those who work in banks, but you are likely to get a better sense of how money is handled or mishandled if you go and look and interview people who are broke. They will give you an idea about what money means from their perspective. Similarly, (laughs) if you are interested in understanding housing, it's good to ask the architects, it's good to ask the planners, but you're better off asking people who are homeless. They'll give you a very good understanding of what it means to own a home. In other words, it is that, that level of thinking of, of the tendency of our ability to see the world upside down. That is what we are trying to do here. That there are other communities with views about COVID for example, the guy with the mask, why does he got a mask? Why does he wear that? What is it that he's seeking to accomplish? And that sort of that's, that's the using that, his expertise and knowledge is just as important as the biomedical knowledge. So mm-hmm. all that tied in very closely with um, our understanding about the geopolitics of knowledge and the attempt to bring to the fore the expertise that is typically downgraded in scholarship.
0: Right. So this project is also a way of recognizing the validity of yes. coexisting epistemologies, coexisting ways of thinking, and bringing yes. that to the forefront.
2: Yes, it ties into the other book. I know you'll, know term, you'll, you'll ask us what, what are we going to do when this project ends, if it ever ends. It's fitting very well in the other book that we are working on for the University of Toronto Press on the sociolinguistics of the Global South, which is a follow-up to one or two books that I have done, in which we are celebrating other epistemologies, uh, for example, which come out uh, in contexts which are regarded as
0: informal. Thank you for all that, Dr. Makoni. Timbi, I know you have a couple of questions. I'll turn it over to you now.
1: Sure, thank you, RNA. I see you've spoken a lot about how grassroots uh, people have reacted to COVID yes. and of course with humor. Um, uh-huh. I just want to bring you back to the reaction to COVID in the Global North in relation to Africa. Uh-huh. Can, you co- can you comment on the Global North's reaction to the way African countries were supposedly going to cope with COVID-19? Because it seems that there was an expectation that African countries were going to be worst hit and would struggle as opposed Uh to the global north once again, echoing the way Africa has been seen from Western eyes uh, Mm -hmm. as a foil to Euro-America in the continent basically of disease and death. What's your insight to this?
2: Uh, Yes. Our our view is that um, it appears that the dystopic image of Africa that uh, was being circulated hasn't materialized yet and there are a number of uh, different reasons. One reason might be found in the nature of uh, scholarship in gerontological circles. For example, within the U.S. COVID ravaged some of the nursing homes and that and we don't have such institutions in African context. We have got multi-generational households, yes, but we don't have institutions where nursing homes, uh, such as nursing homes, et cetera. So nursing homes here were the centerpiece, were the centerpiece for some of these for for COVID. That could be one of the reasons. Then the other reason I think um, why we may have for the time being, dodged the bullet is that um, the African population at the moment is fully aware it has in in its immediate background the history of HIV, Ebola and other um, uh, pandemics. So they they are likely to take uh, discussions about uh, epidemics much more seriously because they've got a lived history of having to Try and mix of trying to live within this particular context. That is um, another way of thinking about it. But then the third, third issue, um, is that it's still too early in this um, particular pandemic for us to be able to say Africa has uh, has dodged the the bullet. Precisely because um, even if Africa may have uh, dodge the bullet in terms of the number of deaths. If you have um, Europe and the United States economy crumbling because of the way the global e- economy is set up, this will have ramifications on, on Africa, right? So there is a way in which we, we could perhaps survive the health dimension to it, but um, our economies are likely to be undercut When the American economy and the European economy are are weakened, and then let me give you a very good um, example. You have, for example, in the diaspora, for example, you have a lot of uh, Africans who send money to to try and to look after their parents, etc. If uh, they are not working in the diaspora, this will have a negative impact. On those family members who are dependent on them, so the interlinkages between Africa yeah. and the global north means that we we are not yet completely what we, we have not yet dodged the bullet. Right.
1: The world is interlinked.
3: Yeah. Yes. yes, yes,
1: right. So yes. The next question that I've asked you is: you mentioned mm. that there are ten African countries represented yes. in your work. What are those countries and why did you bring them together in your study? Oh, what, okay. what makes these places viable, points of comparison?
3: Yes, we are working with well publicly available data sets uh, on the internet, but also uh, WhatsApp memes, you know, circulating amongst groups on the continent. So we actually had initially for uh 10 countries but right now we're looking at in fact extending that to 14 and the reason is as follows we'd like to be able to capture the various uh geographical zones according to which africa tends to be typically divided
2: Mm -hmm.
3: as well as uh, capture elements of the colonial history you know uh which says okay this block is so-called my my words so-called english-speaking anglophone this block is francophone this block is uh, lusophone and so on so we so in terms of uh, the countries we have then in mm-hmm. west africa we'd have uh, togo Sierra leone ghana and nigeria in central africa we would have Cameroon. In Eastern Africa, we have Uganda, Mm -hmm. Kenya, and Tanzania, yes, and then in Southern Africa, uh, Malawi, Zimbabwe, South Africa, Angola, and Mozambique, Mm -hmm. and then in North Africa, we have Sudan. Mm -hmm. So In attempting, therefore, to collect data from this many countries, we are trying to be as representative as possible Mm. in terms of geographical zones Mm. and uh, colonial history. But uh, beyond this, though, and uh, uh, Mm. Professor Makoni alluded to this uh, previously, Mm. Beyond this, we are also driving a fundamental epistemological projects mm. in sociolinguistics. Mm. Um, currently, uh, much of the scholarship on African sociolinguistics is fragmented. So mm. you're doing your thing in this tiny little corner, yeah. you're doing your thing in mm. the other tiny little corner. But we are not linking we are not seeing what patterns, what trends exist across the continent. So, paradoxically, it is humor that is providing the first data sets for us to try to see commonalities across regions of the continent. I mean, we have some other projects involving uh, colorism, you know, where we all try to do a similar thing. So we are committed to an agenda of uh, advancing what we call a Pan-African sociolinguistics. Mm. So, humor across the continent simply is one uh, quilt in that quiver of constructing mm. this Pan-African sociolinguistics. I wonder if Sinfrey would want to add the to that. Don't to that, I think. What we, are, what we are fighting against implicitly
2: here is the general tendency that where you have African scholars uh, which runs, where the narrative runs like this. Makoni is from Zimbabwe, so he writes about Zimbabwe. Uh, Basi is from Nigeria, he writes about Nigeria, and, and that's it. That's all that they write about. So by adopting a pan-African slant, we're trying to get as broad a rich as possible. Because if you only write about the country you think or imagine you come from, what you tend to do is you narrow the range and scope of things that you do. Yes, there are advantages of working in a country that you think you know, but you professionally narrow down the range of things that you can do. So epistemologically, our main aim is to break down the national barriers, to say that national barriers are not national epistemological centers, but the two are different things altogether. So we are separating issues about citizenship from issues about epistemology. We have got what we call epistemological uh, centers, which are different from uh, geographical units. Right, Geographical units or political units are one thing. That's one way of thinking about the world. But we are more interested in epistemological units. And in order to arrive at these epistemological units, we have to break away from seeing the world of epistemology through the lenses of uh, citizenship or geography.
1: Yeah. I find this very intriguing, decolonial work. And um, I'll just pose one more question. Which you, mm-hmm. might have, in which you might have touched on already. Mm-hmm. How did you go about finding collaborators? Were there any specific cr- criteria that you should meet? They should meet?
2: What we did was, we used some of our existing networks to enlist individuals who, have got who are generally supportive of the work that we do, right? Uh, particularly in the African context. The collaborators at Penn State, those were largely the students that I had worked with directly or been associated with um, over my my, stay at Penn State. So those were the two main reasons. But the unsaved um, thing about the collaborators as well is that for us we looked for people who would be interested in taking part in this project. If they also One were busy and had other projects to do. I don't work with anybody who who is not busy and who doesn't have any project to do, because they don't know what it means to work, right? (laughs) Because that guy is busy because he has completed other projects in the past and he knows what it means to manage projects. So you have to be busy. You have to have done some projects in the past, and there must be something that you are doing at the moment which will compete with what we are trying to do. So that Mm -hmm. is the criteria that. Interesting. We're using faiths to become our collaborators. We never told them that formally but that is the main reason. So if they are not busy anymore, then we move on to somebody
1: else. Thank you. (laughs) I'll I'll pass it over to Aireday now.
0: Wow, there are so many personal considerations that go into the creation of these projects. It's not only the research you want to put together, it's the communities you want to build is the people yes. that you want to meet and the conversations that you want to have. Yes. I do want to talk a little bit about method though. So people okay. say once you explain a joke it's not funny anymore but please humor mm-hmm. me. Mm-hmm. Could you talk about the ways that you analyze humor? What is your method?
3: Okay so um, it's, it's still early days and um, we just shared a couple of uh, samples of the material we were looking at but very broadly speaking, uh, what we are hoping to have as a method, we don't want to use that term very likely, all right? Uh, what mm. we are hoping eventually would be our method will be multidimensional. Mm-hmm. It will be very eclectic, drawing from an understanding of the contexts in which the humour was created, um, looking at analysing the images uh, colors, uh, mm-hmm. looking at uh, whatever textual material there there exists. When we do have a method, all right, um, it's going to be very very multidimensional because you can't you can't analyze some of these memes. Memes travel, so mm-hmm. there's a spatial dimension. There's a temporal dimension. Mm-hmm. Uh, just to give an example. Um One of the memes I showed um the one about the police officers going to enforce uh mm-hmm. <laughs> social distancing mm-hmm. um, paradoxically paradoxically and this is very interesting did not originate in the covid era, but um whoever posted it found it so useful in communicating what is happening so that image has been repurposed Mm. okay Mm. it's been taken from its original context and inserted into the context of COVID-19 where it's humorous but also communicates a message Mm. so we are therefore looking at uh, a variety of spatial and temporal dimensions. We are also seeking to evolve ultimately a method that will attend to the nature of current theorization around humor, Mm -hmm. all right? What constitutes humor? So Mm -hmm. we're drawing on recent work on assemblages and on lines in anthropology, to rethink the current theorization of humor so in a nutshell then we are attempting to evolve a method that is going to be based on several pillars Mm. we do not think that you can do justice to this subject by taking a one-dimensional view Mm. all right you need to know the history you need to know the temporality you need to know the space you Mm. need to know um, in what network this was found. You need to know mm-hmm. where this has traveled from, where it originated from, and the the modifications that have taken place as it moves from one location to the other. So we had the meme of the uh, cabbage mask mm-hmm. originating somewhere in Kenya, going to uh, Latin America, um, Get, when it gets to Nigeria, it takes on a pigeon text, mask my mask. Mm. So these are all the sorts of dimensions that one would have to bring together in order to evolve, you know, a method that we think would do justice to the subject matter.
2: Mm. Mm. And in the analysis, when you are looking at a meme from one context, uh, what we have done is we've exposed ourselves to Memes from a large number of different contexts. So, for example, the issue about um, making sure that it's your six feet between Lessemi and Basi, etc. Right? If you try and apply that particular notion, um, we're told to Finland, it falls flat because, mm-hmm. in, yeah, in Finland, people are always walking six feet between each other. So, even before the word before the COVID, that is what they were always doing, right? So when you come up now and say to the Finns, oh, you must keep six feet between you and everybody else because of COVID, I mean, they interpret it completely differently, right? But that is what they've always been doing anywhere, right? So a Finnish interpretation of, uh, of these six feet instructions is completely different from how other people may interpret what is taking place, yes. Mm.
0: So again, the context of humor determines a lot about what it's able to communicate and what it's able to do.
2: Thank you so much for sharing that. What you then do is if you're building a team, you make sure that your individuals come from different uh, contexts, because they will be able to pick some of these items, which you might not be. For example, we didn't know that in Finland, was of this tendency, the desire to just to keep away from somebody else. Being six feet away from them is a normal process, even before COVID, right? So when it's all like you, you could then argue we are all trying to be like the fiends. <laughs> right.
0: <laughs> I want to walk a little bit back, um, well, take us a little bit back Mm -hmm. And point this out, you've mentioned this before in the interview. You've recently been awarded one of the Social Science Research Council's Rapid Response Grants on Mm COVID-19 and the social sciences. So first off, congratulations. Mm
3: -hmm. Thank you. Uh
0: Now, the SSRC Rapid Response Grant, quote, supports projects from across the social sciences and related fields that address the social, economic, cultural, psychological, Mm -hmm. and political impact of COVID-19 in the United States and globally. As well as responses to the pandemic's wide ranging effects. End quote. Mm-hmm. This particular grant is offered in partnership with the Henry Luce Foundation and with mm-hmm. the support of the Wenner Gren, Ford, John D., and Catherine T. MacArthur, and William and Flora Hewlett Foundations. Mm-hmm. Could you talk about your involvement with the SSRC? Why was this grant and this organization appealing to you, and how are both going to help your research?
2: Mm-hmm. Frankly, we didn't go out in search of the SSRC. We were just doing our own thing. And then all of a sudden, we found, uh, I think it was Bassey, we then said, oh, yeah, there is there's a call for, it, uh, for grants. And then we said, oh, let's try and see if we can apply. Then we applied. And um, we discovered when we were applying that, yeah, to some extent, we thought we had one good idea which we could sell to the SSRC and the other funding agencies. What is the lesson for the, the moral of the story? The moral of the story is that it's not a very wise thing to go on an all out search for grants. Let grants look for you, right? Because in the mm-hmm. sense that get on with your, your scholarship, there will be points of intersection right where you are doing whatever you're working on and then you discover that ah yeah this is this fits into that right the danger of simply going on an all-out way to look for grants is that you will then be forced to tailor-make your work to suit a particular funding body but that's not what we're doing we were just interested in our own intellectual creativity but that creativity then fitted into the requirements of a particular funding agency and we then applied. That's how we went about our own work. And we found that to be a very helpful way because we, we don't feel, for example, like now, the conditions that were put on us by the SSRC are not completely different from what we were planning to do anyway, even if we're not funded. Mm-hmm. So we're not changing direction in that in that way, yeah.
0: That's excellent. I think that's great advice, especially since some of our listeners are graduate students. We're doing research. We're looking for ways of furthering our research and applying for grants. Yes, but so
2: what about the the story is you must continue doing what you are interested in doing. Yes, you can try and tailor-make whatever you're doing for the particular prize, but continue writing and researching in the area that you are interested in. You will find a, a finding body that matches your interests. You don't want to completely turn upside down your own entry areas of interest to, so that you can force it to, to fit into a particular funding mechanism. Right.
0: Mm. Right, absolutely. Mm. So I want to ask, what happens after the grant period? Where do you see your project taking you in the future?
3: So because, uh, like Marconi said, um, Getting the grant was a for Twitter's concourse of events, you know, things just mm. happened and you know, we got it. Um, so, mm. we will continue to do what we set out to do, which is publish papers, mm. um, maybe right. throw in a book there, build on that for other related research. Uh, one might be keen, for instance, on revisiting previous epidemics and pandemics Mm. um, to look at what role humor played Mm. uh, there. Yeah, speaking at uh, events uh, such as Mm -hmm. this. Um, So basically, yeah, remaining the uh, academics we have always been, (laughs) uh, (laughs) our (laughs) academic citizenship is not going Mm. to come to an end when Mm. the funding Period ends so we'll just keep on doing uh, what we're doing, but of course, there's no doubt that uh, getting funded by a prestigious body such as the SRC mm. provides something of a stamp of approval mm. for the way we think, so we will leverage we will leverage that recognition in mm. future work you know. Mm. Um, so we'll continue to do what we've always been doing, yeah. and hopefully from that some advocacy work could be something of a spin-off. Mm. So that mm. hopefully we don't have another pandemic or an mm. epidemic, but should we have one? All stakeholders know that it can simply be about biomedicine. Yeah, yeah that's the point. That, that's it. So yeah. that's, that's critical. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, if uh, giving a talk uh, here or there yeah. would help uh, create that awareness, I I, I think it's something we would be very uh, uh-huh. happy to do. Because well, you see, um,
2: we are not downplaying the uh, advantages of getting this grant. Because if we had not got the grant, you wouldn't have bothered talking to us. You see, so.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I doubt that. I sincerely doubt that. This is a fascinating work.
2: So we are grateful for that. Um, but we, yeah, that, that's one major advice. But we'll continue, I mean, doing the things that we do, which is writing, do, and that's it. Um, we live Basically, that's all that I mean. That's all that I've mean, personally I have done in my career. That's right. At the moment, I think between me and myself, I think we've got about three, four different books that we are we are working on simultaneously, and it it works well. The insane story about working on academic life and doing this is you need also somebody who is supportive. I'm lucky that my other partner. Um, doesn't bother me about the more demanding aspects of maintaining the household. So I've got free time, right? So if, you, if you're not married yet, go and marry somebody who will do all the work for you, right? And it it, it, it <laughs> helps. It helps. It helps. Uh, but I just... That's all that I do. But is a bit more complicated because he runs the household, so but
0: so you mentioned that you're in the process of writing a few books. Um, I actually want to ask you if there are any books or other materials that you'd recommend to our listeners who are interested in learning more about your project and about COVID-19 in Africa in general.
2: Yeah, Barsi uh, uh, has compiled a number of uh, different references that uh, we could uh, send to you,
0: yeah. And I'll make those resources available on our website again. That's sites.psu.edu backslash liberal arts collective. Okay, good. All right. And I'll, I'll end with my final question. Are there any questions that we should have asked you but have not?
2: Well, we were surprised when we were preparing this text. These were very detailed questions. Um, so <laughs> they give us an opportunity I- to, to generate more text for our project as we try to answer all these questions. So thank you very much for finding the time to ask us all these systematic questions because as you go through a particular project, you need to produce bits and pieces of text, right? So this has been very helpful in in getting us to engage with our own project, right? In ways that we wouldn't have done on a Friday. I mean, for example, it's about 10.30 <laughs> now, but uh, we honored our obligation to get you, we we'll provide you with a coherent account. Yeah.
0: Thank you so much for that. And yeah. thank you so much for your time, the stories you've shared and the, and the work that you're doing. I'm really looking forward to seeing how your project develops. It's been okay. a pleasure talking with you. Yeah. Thanks.
2: Yes, you must come to African studies more frequently, right?
1: Thank you. Thank you, Professor Antia and Professor Makoni for the time you took. This has been a fascinating, fascinating conversation, and we're looking forward to more. Thank you, Irene. Thank you. Thank you very
0: much. Unraveling the Anthropocene is brought to you by the Liberal Arts Collective at Penn State. This episode was edited and produced by Hannah Matangos. Be sure to follow along and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.